It is indeed a happy day. It always is because of the relationship that we have with our God and the grace that He's bestowed upon us, but especially when we get to come together and reflect on those things and to bring honor and glory to Him. I've been encouraged by your presence. I hope that you've been encouraged to be here and to worship God with brethren. And certainly, I hope that as we've already contributed to this worship service collectively, and there's already been uh, certainly capable men leading us in these efforts that this would continue as we go into a study of God's Word. I probably don't say this enough, but I would encourage you to have the Berean spirit and hold me accountable and test all things as we study God's Word and compare what is being said to God's Word to find out that it is from His Word. And then I want to encourage you to apply those things, to maintain that blessedness, that happiness, that contentment, and that joy that only comes in relationship with God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit's revelation. I think that there's much confusion today, and I think that is an understatement, regarding spiritual life in Christ. You know, it's interesting thinking about when reading through the book of Acts, especially as the gospel is taken to the pagan world, just how different and new this is. But now, fast forward 2,000 years later, it's pretty common. Everyone knows the name Jesus Christ. Uh, there's, there's probably more people as time continues in a secularized age that are being raised without a common knowledge of the story of Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection. But certainly I think it's a universal thought and a universal story. Many people think of it just in that way instead of a historical account and significance in everyone's life. Yet still there's so much confusion about it. It's, it's really interesting that if we just sit down and we read the Bible uh, and we do it consistently, prayerfully, with integrity, it's, it's not a hard book to understand. There's some challenging pieces of it. Peter says as much in 2 Peter 3. In verse 16, Paul has some really difficult passages, but the general, the message that really the fundamental points of which would lead us to understand those more difficult passages, and God wants us to understand, it's, it's interesting that even though it's just accessible to everyone, that there's so much confusion about it, so much disorder about it, so, so much conflict over it. And I think that's even true in the church, sadly. There, there is denominationalism and error all about us. And we're foolish if we think that hasn't had an effect on members of the church. When you're talking to people at work, when you're talking to people at school, kids, and when, when you're just around about the community, when, when you're hearing songs on the radio, when you are watching TV shows or, or movies and there's political discussions, the, the, concepts and sayings and language even of scripture has been infused within at least our culture. There are many things that people will say and and talk about who aren't even believers in God at all who don't realize what they're saying actually can be found in scripture, what the, the phrase they use, the thing that they say. And so we're foolish if we think being in a society like this with with so much kind of spiritual discussion that we would not be influenced and our understanding would not be jeopardized of true spiritual reality and truth in Christ with all the error that is about us. I think that far too many Christians have these conversations and express language that sounds very spiritual and biblical and they don't know what they're talking about. And they're saying biblical words like grace and spiritual and and the cross of Christ and those kinds of things, and they don't realize what really is involved in a life that is characterized truly by those sentiments of, of Scripture. One of those is walking in the Spirit. Do you walk in the Spirit? Do you know what that means? Do, do we really comprehend when we talk about walking spiritually and walking according to the Spirit, what that actually looks like? What does that Entail. It's been reduced by many in the world. I would suggest to you by most in the quote unquote Christian world, using that very, very loosely, not as it pertains to the Bible, but have reduced it to a form of emotionalism that, you know, spirituality and relationship with God, walking in the spirit is 
is just kind of doing, not thinking and feeling and, and not overthinking and just kind of going with your gut. And that's the spirit and you're walking with the spirit. Well, that's not biblical. And I think that that has touched the church as well. The difference is, I think, that Christians who have a misunderstanding about true spiritual life and what it means to walk in the spirit, they've kind of intertwined that kind of emotionalism with the language of scripture that they've learned throughout their life. And they misinterpret very basic passages through a denominational and error-filled lens. Well, even in the first century, Paul dealt with confusion about walking in the spirit, about spiritual life in Christ. He dealt with error regarding that. And I think Galatians 5 really encapsulates uh, very vividly and and effectively what it means to walk in, in the spirit and what it doesn't mean, what it looks like, and how important it is if we claim to walk in the spirit that we actually exhibit these kinds of truths and qualities in our lives. And we would do well then uh, to dispel the confusion concerning spiritual life in Christ, which exists today, which is all around us. And we need to have our eyes peeled about those things. We would do well to dispel it with the Spirit's words through the pen of the Apostle Paul. We know Galatians 5, as Kurt read in the scripture reading, talks about walking in the Spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. We know it to be a contrast of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. It's very dear to our hearts. And we're going to look at that. But consider the context with me this morning. He's speaking about the liberty of Christ. He begins this chapter saying, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. He'd say in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Stand fast in, in liberty. Uh, we value, I think, and I know as generations continue, that's it's less appreciated and that's where problems come in, but we value liberty in this country. Freedom is something that we value. It's something we hold dear and it's something we're willing to fight for. It's something that we remember how it was fought for, how it was secured in the past and the sacrifices that were made for our freedom. And, and it's no less and the freedom in Christ, it's a, it's a valuable thing. It's something that we should stand fast in. I would not soon move to another country because I know the goodness we have in this free country. But some would not think about that in a spiritual way and would depart from Christ and they're abandoning liberty. He's saying stand fast in liberty because there were some brethren that were abandoning this newfound liberty and security in Christ Jesus. Notice in verse 7, he says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The idea is who, who hindered you to stop obeying the truth? They had obeyed the truth. Now they're not anymore. He says, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. The ideas you're following and entertaining, the way you're going, it didn't come from Christ. Who hindered you? He warns, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You have no idea how damaging this is, how far this can take you. You may think you stand in the liberty of Christ, but you have abandoned it. That's the context. Someone has persuaded you to leave it. But he has confidence in them, in the Lord, that, verse 10, you have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. He goes on to manifest the level of his righteous indignation. I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. I wish those who are preaching circumcision, it's graphic language, would mutilate themselves. Not just cut off what's supposed to be cut off in that act, but mutilate themselves. That's how bad this is, that the Apostle Paul would use such language. He explains, listen, you heard the gospel from me, and if I'm preaching this kind of hybrid gospel law of Moses message where you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the law to be saved, then why am I still suffering persecution for preaching something which would make null and void and obsolete that law? It doesn't make any sense. You have departed from the path. Instead, you need to stand fast in the liberty. The New American Standard Bible says in verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He freed you not so you could walk right back into that prison. He freed you so that you could live 
free. What's he talking about, though? He talks about not becoming entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He say in verse two, I say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. So the bondage, the slavery is also attributed to circumcision. He explains in verse three, if I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And I know that you're familiar with Galatians, so it goes without saying. The bondage he's talking about has to do with being under the law of Moses. That was a tutor to bring us to Christ, stand fast in that liberty, but now you're keeping circumcision, you're, you're binding the old law on you, and now you are a slave again. That's the problem. But here's something that's interesting. You can't be a Christian without knowing this fundamental principle within the New Testament. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. That's what Paul dealt with in large part. The fact that the law has been nailed to the cross and you're not to keep the law for justification any longer. But I think there's a lot of confusion about that among brethren as well. Why was the law of Moses a yoke of bondage that could not be borne by any? It's not because it was a law. There's a first confusion, I think. There are Christians who think that the law of Moses was a law of slavery and bondage that no one could bear because it was a law that required us to keep commandments. That's not what the Bible tells us. In fact, notice in verse 13 of this same chapter, he explains, don't use the liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And what does he quote? The law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If the problem with the law of Moses was that it was a law, then why would Paul quote in an encouraging context to follow part of what that law had revealed? Why would he say in chapter 6 and verse 2 that we are under the law of Christ if the problem was simply law? There's a false notion, and I think even some brethren have been influenced to think this way, that law is inherently bad, and that there is an antithesis between law and grace. I understand in Romans 6, he says that you are not under law, but under grace. But the idea is you're not only under law, but you're especially under grace. We're under the law of Christ. They're not antithetical. The law of Moses and forgiveness were antithetical in regard to the fact that there was no blood for true atonement under that law. But law and grace are not antithetical. In Titus 2, it says the grace of God teaches us to live a righteous and sober and godly life. James 1 and verse 25 calls the law of Christ the law of liberty. It's a law that promotes this liberty. When he says stand fast in liberty, he's not saying the whole problem was law. It was which law and which law you turn to, which would take you away from that liberty. And so we always notice that word in verse 1. Therefore, stand fast, therefore. I want us to notice what the context follows in chapter four. He had given an allegory using Abraham's two sons born of his two women, one the handmaid Hagar, who was a bondwoman, and one his, his wife Sarah, who was a free woman. We, rem we remember the promise of God that he would have a son through Sarah, but they thought that wasn't gonna happen, so they took matters into their own hands and he had a son by the handmaid Hagar. It says in verse 24, as he's using allegory, that these things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, chapter 4 of Galatians in verse 24. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar, uh, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. That's what Hagar's representing. It's the old covenant which gives birth to bondage. If you are under the old covenant, you are under bondage. That's his point. But here's what he says in verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. That's what corresponds to Sarah, a free woman. It gives birth to freedom. But then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 54 and in verse 1. Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. That's Isaiah 54 and verse 1. And according to Paul, by inspiration, it's speaking about Christians who are free under this new covenant. Under the old covenant, you're in bondage to sin. Under this new covenant, you correspond to the free woman who gave birth to freedom, not bondage. 
That's what Isaiah 54 and verse 1 is talking about. It's a messianic prophecy about the messianic kingdom, about the spiritual blessings in Christ, about the borders of this kingdom being universal, including even Gentiles. But what does Isaiah 54 follow? Numerically, Isaiah 53, but that's the fourth servant song that's talking about the Messiah dying for the sins of the people. And in Isaiah 53 in verse 10, it tells us, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. What's the seed there that he sees? It's us, brethren. It's, it's the people that are born of that covenant that are redeemed by his sacrifice and their sins are atoned for by his blood. That's why he says in chapter five and verse one, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not become entangled again in the yoke of bondage. She explained if you keep circumcision, you're indebted to keep the whole law. And then notice verse four of chapter five. This is why there's bondage under the law of Moses. And if you turn back to the law of Moses for justification, you turn back to slavery. Verse four, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law. That's the law of Moses. You have fallen from grace. Why was the law of Moses a law of bondage? It wasn't because it was a law. It was because it was a law that did not have the provision to atone for sin. It pointed to that. And so the problem with turning back to the law of Moses is not that now you're a rule follower and rule followers are going to hell. The problem is you turn away because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. You turn away from the one person and sacrifice that was given by God for you to be freed from those sins when you failed to keep the law of God. In chapter 3 of Galatians, it explains, as many as are of the works of the law, verse 10, are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. If you're to be justified by the law, you have to keep it perfectly. That's the point. But all of sin. And that's when he says Christ became that curse for us. So if I turn back to the law of Moses, I'm turning away from the one sacrifice provided under the new covenant whereby my sins will be redeemed. He's not saying that if you try to follow God's word as perfectly as you can, that you are going to be in bondage. He's saying if you turn away from the law that has the provision of sin, you will be in bondage because you will not keep the law perfectly. There's a huge difference there, brethren. There's a huge difference. He's not saying don't bother trying to live righteously because that's unredeemed legalism. Why would he say in verse seven, you ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? If he's saying you shouldn't even try to obey, that's legalism, that's being a Pharisee. But instead he's saying, don't seek righteousness by the law of Moses, but through faithfulness in the gospel of Christ, the law of Christ, chapter six and in verse two. So that's one misunderstanding that they had, that you've got to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. But he's saying that if you go back to the law of Moses, you go away from the one thing that has saved you. Here's probably something more germane to us. I think we need to understand what we just studied because a lot don't and it causes problems. It wasn't rule keeping that was the problem. It was failing to keep the rules and not having a sacrifice to take those sins away. You've got to keep the rules of the law of Christ, the gospel of Christ. And it's under that law that there's provision of sin. But here's the, the thing that's, I think, a huge problem even today. He says in verse 13, you brethren have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. In Romans 3 and verse 8, the apostle Paul mentioned something that had been going around about his teaching, a, a false notion he said, why not, why not say let us do evil that good may come as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. There were some that were saying, Paul, if, 
If what you preach is true, then you're saying in order for any good to come, we've got to just continue in our sin. He'd address that in chapter six as well. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, because we've died to sin. And so that's a misunderstanding of the law. This false notion that the gospel's requirement to die to the law of Moses means that there's going to be spiritual anarchy. The law of Moses gave us spiritual and moral direction. So if you're saying that's, that's something we turn away from and we follow Christ, the gospel, grace, then we're going to have a lot of problems, spiritual anarchy. And there were certainly some Christians who, who actually had that misunderstanding. And they thought that if I'm in Christ, everything's taken care of and I don't have to live any certain way. And they gave themselves opportunity for the flesh in that misunderstanding of liberty. But you notice what he says there in verse 13. Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so you're not free from obligation. That's not the liberty. It's not freedom from obligation or any law whatsoever. It's freedom from death and sin and the law of Moses, certainly. But you're not just freed from all obligation. You've got to love one another. Those who would suggest we do not be concerned with doing right because we're under grace, they're a product of the problem that Paul's addressing. Some say Christ did it all for us, so we don't have to do anything. That is a manifestation of a similar misunderstanding of the freedom in Christ. It's not freedom from responsibility. It's not freedom from obligation. He says, based on that freedom, and we're still trying to stand fast in that liberty, the way you do that and the whole reason you were freed is to, through love, serve one another. That's what Paul would say in Romans 7 and in verse 4 when he's explaining to the Jews about the law. He says, my brethren, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. Not that you can just be free to run around doing what you want. To him who raised from the dead, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. You died to the law so that you can be joined to Christ and bear fruit to him. And in their misunderstanding of the gospel, Galatians 5, as he addresses them, they were living selfishly to the detriment of their brethren. It says that they were being biting and devouring one another. And he warns in verse 15, but where lest you be consumed from one another or by one another. He said in verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, based on a misunderstanding of the liberty in Christ, brethren. It's not that they didn't believe Christ. They didn't understand Christ. They were giving themselves to the flesh. And ironically, they were not in liberty anymore. But they were in bondage to sin again. Isn't it telling in verse 14 what the Apostle Paul would go on to do when, when he says, you can't try to be justified by keeping the law. You got to stand fast in liberty. If you go back to the law, you estrange yourself from Christ. But only not that you can't provide an opportunity for the flesh through that liberty either. And isn't it telling in verse 14 that he then quotes from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So how does that correspond and harmonize with verse four, that if you attempt to be justified by law, you're estranged from Christ and are fallen from grace. The opposition said, if what Paul is saying is true, then there will be unbridled lust. But then Paul would say in verse 16, walk in the spirit. He says in verse 18, if you are led by the spirit, you're not under law. We don't need the law of Moses for that moral direction, not as a law. I know it's there for our learning. We've talked about that plenty of times. It's, it's valuable to us, but our standard is Christ. If you're led by the spirit, you're, you're not under the old law, the law of Moses. But it's interesting in verse 14, he quotes from the law of Moses. And you say, well, how is he binding the law of Moses when he just said we can't bind the law of Moses? The point is, is that that command to love God, to love your neighbor, you could throw in commands like you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not covet, you should not lie, you should not bear false witness. All of those moral laws that are wrapped up in the very nature of God, they are reinstated and reaffirmed in the gospel of Christ. He's saying you don't need the law of Moses for a sense of moral direction. You can learn from it, though, because a lot of that is in here. 
It's not an opportunity for the flesh. Some among our brethren have even asked, I've had some ask me this question, why do we go to the old law to show that some things are required or wrong? Well, really, technically we don't. We see them required or exposed as sin under the new law, but those things were also sin or required under the old law. That's why Jesus quotes, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, Deuteronomy 6. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus chapter 19. Because while that was under the law of Moses, he's saying it's also the law of Christ. And so we die to the law of Moses. And what walking spiritually means is not abandon all law. What walking according to the Spirit means is that now there's a new law that provides grace. But it's a law nonetheless. It's strict. It requires sacrifice. It requires change. It requires a knowledge of its contents. And if you are to stand in the liberty of Christ, you must keep that law. That's gospel, brethren. The fact of Christ's sacrifice and the spiritual revelation of the gospel, it doesn't promote a libertinistic life. It gives a liberty, but what kind of liberty? Liberty from sin. Liberty to be in fellowship with God who is holy, holy, holy. And so in that liberty, if we're to stand fast in it, it demands that we abstain from sin and pursue righteousness and the instruction of the Spirit. That's what he says in verse 24, isn't it? Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Is there life under the old law before the Spirit revealed the gospel? No. It pointed to the hope in Christ. If we live in the Spirit, the gospel that He's revealed, if I'm alive spiritually in fellowship with God and it's based on what the Spirit has revealed in Christ Jesus, then I ought to be keeping that law. Because if I'm not keeping that law, I'm not really in the Spirit. I'm not really alive spiritually. I'm not really belonging to Christ. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. We are standing fast in the liberty. So he goes on to demonstrate that, and we see some great contrast. First, the contrast of source. He says, I say then, verse 16, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we might ask the question, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? He tells us walk in the Spirit. Well, he said in verse 18, that means you're led by the Spirit. That's something objective, isn't it? If I am not going my own way and there is a leader I'm following, that is outside of myself. That is objective. I'm following an object here, the Spirit's direction. This is something that he had already alluded to and addressed back in chapter 3 when he was making an argument that everything they have from fellowship with God to the revelation of his word and the confirmation of it through miracles, all of that, did it come from your keeping the law of Moses or did it come from you having faith in Jesus? That's his questions in Galatians chapter 3. I want to learn from you something. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Did you come into fellowship with God who is the Spirit, fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Did that come from the keeping of the law of Moses or for the hearing of faith? They know the answer. Are you so foolish, verse 3, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You remember in John 3, Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, he says, wait a second, I'm already a Jew. I, how can I be born again? Enter in my, my mother's womb a second time. And Jesus is saying, no, it's a spiritual birth. Even a Jew has to be born spiritually. It's a Jew who is inwardly that matters. And so he's saying, when you began, you became a child of God. Was it from the law of Moses that you were born into? Or was that, did that actually happen? True spiritual Israel when you were born in the spirit. And, and if that's the case, when you were born of the Spirit, that's where it began. How do you think you're going to start being mature by turning back to the law of Moses? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And he says in verse 5, 
He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? All those miracles, what are they associated with? The law of Moses or the Holy Spirit? And what are they confirming? Are they confirming the law of Moses and circumcision and all these works, or are they confirming the gospel of Christ? They knew the answers to the questions, brethren. Here's the point. They were now being led by the Spirit. They were following the gospel of Christ. Their law was revealed by the Spirit. Their fellowship with God was tied up in the Spirit's leadership, in the Spirit's revelation, not the law of Moses. Well, what does that mean? In Ephesians chapter 5, and verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul told the brethren there, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We've got to walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, and that corresponds to understanding the will of the Lord. Chapter 6 and verse 17 of Ephesians, it demonstrates that the Spirit's instrument is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The parallel passage in Colossians 3.16 we know tells us, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Speaking about the song worship that we're involved in for edification, Ephesians says, be filled with the Spirit. Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So when he says, walk in the Spirit, when he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're no longer under the law of Moses, what does that mean? If our fellowship with God is through the Spirit, the fact that we live spiritually is based on the Spirit's revelation and not the law of Moses, what does that mean except that we're following Christ through the gospel that the Spirit revealed. There is a new law that we are following, a law that liberates from sin and death, but a law that does not liberate to do whatever we want, but directs us in a sense of spiritual living and holiness. And so there's a contrast of source. It's coming from the Spirit. It's coming from the Word of God. Walking in the Spirit means I'm objectively, there's an object I'm following. I'm being led by what the Spirit, the person of the Spirit has revealed. This is His work. I'm following this Word of God. But then he mentions the flesh. He says the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And he says they're contrary so that you do not do the things that you wish. You see that contrast? leading or being led by the Spirit, that's objective. But that's so that you don't do what you want to do. That's subjective. So many people who even claim to be Christians are just doing every day what they want to do. And when they know that the gospel will require them to sacrifice and do something contrary to what they would first be inclined to do, their excuse for going ahead and doing what they want to do is that God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. And they claim to be Led by the Spirit? That's contrary to this very passage. He says being led by the Spirit is what the Spirit's telling you to do through the Word of God. And being led by the flesh is really you just doing whatever it is you want to do. Over in Ephesians 2, just a page over in our Bibles, in verse 3, he talks about how they were dead in trespasses and sins, and he explains that you are among those who or the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. You want something, you do it. That's what walking according to the flesh looks like. In Romans 8 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul calls flesh as Christ came in the flesh, sinful flesh. And you might balk at that. Wait a second. How is flesh sinful flesh if Christ inhabited it? And the idea is found there in verse 24 of chapter 5, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Within the flesh are certain longings, impulses, feelings. We are fleshly creatures, and so the fleshly world, which is full of sin, appeals to us. And so if I'm not being directed by an outside source, like the Spirit, and I am just following my subjective impulses. I will sin. He's not saying flesh is inherently sinful, that we're born in sin. He's telling us if you leave it up to the flesh, you're going to sin. You've got to have the spirit guiding you. And so I think that helps us understand this contrast 
in a contrast of source with the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians, we think about works. and Romans, we think about works. And, and we think about the works of the law. And the point Paul makes is that if the only way that you can be justified under the law of Moses is by keeping it perfectly, that means you're justified by perfect works. And what he means by that is that it's indebted to you. And so it's something you've performed. I've kept the law perfectly. He said about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, that he who works, it is accounted as debt. But grace is not debt. And so you earn your salvation. And so while he's talking about works of the flesh here, and he's not talking about earning your salvation by the works of the law, what he's essentially saying is that justification is not the product of a man left to himself. This is the product of a man left to himself. If you want to follow your desires, if you want to go your way, this is the product. These are things that you produce by your will, by your desires. They are works. But here's what's interesting. He doesn't say works of the Spirit. I imagine he could have, and we could see truth in that. He says fruit of the Spirit. If works is something I do, fruit is in contrast to that. Fruit is a result of something outside being put in me and germinating and then bringing forth fruit that otherwise would not be there. If you just have uncultivated soil that has, has not been used for farming, it's not going to be growing the crops that farmers grow. You throw a seed in there, it might. An outside source planting something within me to produce it. And so it's not my works, my accomplishments, my products. It's the product of the one who has planted something within me. In John, James chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, He brought us forth by the word of truth. And then he goes on to encourage them by saying, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And so God plants it inside of me and it produces something that cannot be produced just from myself. That would be work. You realize that? It's fruit of the spirit. So let's piece this together for a second. Because there may be Christians who say, you know, I have a buddy at work. He's not a Christian. He doesn't even believe in God. But he exhibits self-control. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. He's a pretty joyous person. In other words, I've seen him exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. But you haven't. Because this fruit, it's coming from the outside source of God and His will. He plants His Word in you. So if, if that love and that joy and that peace and that long-suffering, and that gentleness, and that kindness, all of those qualities, that's not a product of the Spirit leading your life, then it's not the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not going to be very consistent or pure. This is why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me as He bears the fruit of the Spirit. The product is not a reflection of our own work. It's not that we don't do anything, but it's us out of our free will yielding to another's control to use our bodies as a vessel to his glory. That's what walking in the spirit is. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's no longer my desires that I follow, but the seed that has been planted in me, I allow to produce fruit according to God's nature and character. And so there's that great contrast of source that we need to understand. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means you follow the source of God's Word and you don't do what you want to do. And with that contrast of source, there's an obvious contrast of desire. The desires of the flesh are naturally contrary to the desires of the Spirit. And the reason that God has revealed something that would be contrary to what we would lean towards as people in a fleshly and sinful world is because as a holy God, He wants the people He created to be holy, but that's not what they would wish to do left to themselves. So I give you a word to follow so that you do not do the things that you wish. 
I know the way of man is not in himself, Jeremiah says. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. That's the point. They're contrary to one another. I cannot walk to be as God calls me to be without him objectively revealing that path to me and me deciding to go on it and deny my own desires. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. That's the point. A Christian is not a Christian. A spiritual person is not a spiritual person who does what they want to do or picks and chooses to do what the Bible says and leaves other things out. One who walks in the Spirit yields entirely to the detriment of their own desires to the will of God revealed in His Word. And so He reveals the works of the flesh. These are not comprehensive lists. There's other things. He says that they're evident, but then there are some like it that aren't listed here. We need to understand, we need to study lists like this because I think there are things in lists like this that we, we don't really think about every day. We, we, we kind of, there are sins that we know are just wrong and then there are sins that we have justified in our mind. And I think that lists like this that just lay it out black and white. You want to look at what works of the flesh are, what walking in the flesh looks like? This is what it looks like. He says they're commonplace, they're evident, everyone knows that they exist. And, and one of the reasons why they're so evident is because they manifest an attitude which does simply what it wants to do. That's what we live in, a selfish, sin-ridden world. You only have to open your eyes to see these things. But we've got to be understanding of how dangerous that they are. He mentions some sexual sins. He doesn't just say that actual sex outside of marriage, fornication, any sex outside of marriage, any sex away from this, the marriage union is a work of the flesh. I, that would maybe be obvious to us. Adultery is in there, but not in the, the earliest manuscripts as well as murders. But we, those, are, those are self-explanatory, I think, to us. But he doesn't just say fornication. Yeah, that's works of the flesh. I'm a Christian, I wouldn't do that. He talks about uncleanness. This is anything of impurity that is a precursor to fornication. It, it can include thoughts. It can include the entertainment we, we view and we, we listen to. It could, it could include company we keep. It can include the language that we utter. Uncleanness, works of the flesh. He talks about lewdness, which is unchaste handling of male and females. It's unbridled lust. So, so dancing and modesty, the, the you know, heavy petting that goes on in, in teenage relationships and stuff. You know, some, some teenage boys, they convince themselves, if I keep my virginity, I'm a faithful Christian. But he says lewdness is a work of the flesh. You know what? It's just, it's just a step away from fornication. Then you say, I'll be faithful to my spouse. And then you wonder why you gave yourself to that opportunity to commit adultery. So, so not just the greatest of them, but at the start. He mentions religious works of the flesh, idolatry, a worship of false gods and images. You create God for yourself. But remember, Paul said in Colossians 3, covetousness is idolatry. You say, I'm not an idol worshiper. I'm a Christian. But I miss church for overtime so that I could have more money to buy more toys. He mentions sorcery that's closely linked with idolatry, which is fraudulent activity claimed to be the power from a false god like Acts 8 with Simon the sorcerer. And it's the Greek word pharmakeia, which it would include the administration of drugs to convince the person that you do have some divine powers that are attributed to this god. But I want to tell you, this would include any kind of ploy that people put out there to attract to religious error. That's sorcery. There's a reason why the Bible calls us to sobriety so that we don't succumb to the tricks of the wizards of this age that don't actually have magic, but their sophistry is of a spiritual sort and spiritual error. Then he talks about relational sins, hatred, that bitterness inside, that animus towards someone else that would lead to contentions, the quarreling, fighting, and that comes from jealousy that someone may have toward another. And look at this, outbursts of wrath. 
What's an outburst of wrath? Thayer says it's passion or angry heat. Anger forthwith boiling up and soon subsiding again. There may be a person who says, you know what, I'm a good Christian and I don't have an anger problem. Usually I just got to vent it. I've got to let it out and then I can calm back down. That's outbursts of wrath. You see that? You say, well, that person can't be an elder, but they can be a faithful Christian. No, an elder is a faithful Christian, you see. And so, so Christians who fly off the handle, they scream and yell at each other. Maybe it's in marriages or relationships or just brethren at a men's business meeting in some churches. They're yelling at each other. It just got the best of me. It's, it's not a big deal. They need to come forward and confess their sins. It's an outburst of wrath. Yelling inherently may not be sinful, but yelling, which is a product of anger, you've sinned. Be angry and do not sin, Ephesians 5 says, this tells us that an outburst of wrath is sinful. He talks about divisive qualities where people have these ambitions and, and they're valued in society today, but it's all about self. That's going to lead to disunity within the church. It's going to formulate into more solidified heresy. That is actual groups. You know, there are some people who want to expand the borders of fellowship and they say, well, this group over here, they believe that there's more than one cause for divorce but there are brethren. We can have fellowship with them. This group over here, they believe that Christ came in AD 70. The second coming already happened. That's, that's insignificant. We can still have fellowship with them. That's heresies. It comes from selfish ambitions that led to division in a solidified congregation that believes in this particular error. That's a work of the flesh, he says. Talks about envy, which is similar to jealousies. He talks about intoxication, drunkenness, just intoxication. Drinking alcohol doesn't talk about the amount. He says intoxication, which would lead to revelries. Partiers. Well, he's just young, sowing his wild oats. It's works of the flesh. And he says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says in chapter six, if you sow to the flesh, you will love the flesh, reap corruption. But then he speaks about the fruit of the spirit. I want us to notice very briefly that this fruit, it's not fruits, it's singular. And the works of the flesh, they're pretty assorted. While they all may have some kind of relation to one another, and you saw that there were some building blocks of those sins, where uncleanness leads to lewdness, leads to fornication, leads to adultery. In reality, their only unity is chaos. And it only takes one of them to be lost. I may not be an adulterer, but I may be jealous of someone and that will keep me from the kingdom and so there's a sordid chaos in the works of the flesh but the fruit of the spirit is singular someone says well i have this fruit this fruit this fruit and this fruit but i don't have these i need to i need to add those he's saying if you really are bearing the fruit of the spirit it's a unit all of these come together they're intertwined and interrelated if you're walking in the Spirit, you are possessing all of these things. It doesn't mean you don't have room to grow, things to work on, but this is a unit, just like God the Father, Son, and the Spirit are units. And he speaks about the core of love, joy, and peace. God is love, 1 John 4 and in verse 8. Are people characterized by love, a love of intelligence. It comprehends the value in its object and then what that object needs according to God's word. And that's what I live for. I live to serve God and I live to serve my fellow man, especially my brethren. A life given to love is a life that will have joy. It's always a happy day as we just sing about. That joy promotes that peace which surpasses all understanding. And it's interesting this is fruit of the Spirit. It's also a command. We're commanded to rejoice in the Lord. We're commanded to be at peace. We're commanded to love. All of these things are coming from our obedience of faith to the Spirit's teaching. And what that will do is it will completely transform relationships with other men. He encouraged them through love, serve one another. How am I to be patient? And that word long-suffering, it's so vivid. I'm suffering long. We've all experienced that in relationships. I am suffering in this relationship. This brother is being this way or doing this thing and it's causing me pain, but I'm being patient about it. That takes love. It took love for God to do that with Israel. And not only that, but I'm going to be kind to this 
individual. I'm going to, to actively pursue something that they need with a helpful disposition. I'm going to pursue their goodness. Do what's right always for them in that relationship according to the will of God. What makes a person be so faithful and trustworthy, have integrity and reliability, except the Spirit's direction? What allows a person to do what it says in Galatians 6 and verse 1? If a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. What, what allows an individual to go to a brother in sin and not be holier than thou and degrading to them and look down on them and rub it in their face and pour salt in the wound? What, what would allow someone to have the strength of character to avoid coming across that way at all, yet still possessing the inner strength without compromise that would require that brother to repent of their sins. How do you find that balance? The Spirit is leading us. What would lead to a person having such self-control that though they have a right to do something, they know that it would lead their brother into sin? like eating meats offered to idols. And I'm not going to do that to my brother. It's following the Spirit. And he says in verse 23, against such there is no law. This is in antithetical parallelism as we study in the Psalms, so I use that kind of language. To verse 21, those who practicing such things will not inherit the kingdom because the law judges you as sinful. But if you follow the Spirit, you'll be found pure. You'll be found blameless. You will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's why he says in chapter 6, he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. If we live in the Spirit, brother, and we wouldn't be here if we didn't think we live in the Spirit. Do you think you have fellowship with God? you think you have salvation? If you died today, will you go to heaven? If you don't have that confidence, there's another problem maybe we should address. But God grants us that kind of confidence. He wants us to have such confidence that I know for certainty where I will be for eternity. I live in the Spirit. The grace of God has saved me from my sin in Christ Jesus. Don't we all believe that? But if that's true, that means we are following faithfully the Word of God. Full self-denial, full surrender to Jesus. Not picking and choosing, but doing it all. That's what walking in the Spirit means. That's what walking in the Spirit looks like. So before you start using that language, oh, you know, we just need to follow the Spirit. We need to be spiritually minded people, spiritual people. Let's walk in the Spirit and encourage each other to walk in the Spirit. What do you mean by that? What does the Bible say that that means? And if by faith you accept it, then won't you do it? If you're here today and you have not obeyed the gospel, we beckon you to begin life in the Spirit. Be born of water in the Spirit. Have your sins washed away. Become a child of God. And then if you have done that, remain faithful. Walk in the Spirit. Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Don't turn back to the bondage of sin. If you have, and we can assist you in making that right and getting out of that and encouraging you and praying for you, come forward while we stand and sing.